Man, I hope that you got a chance to be a part of all that the Lord uh, is doing at this church this past weekend. Um, how many of you were at the prayer night? Just a show of hands. Okay, so a lot of you. That was incredible. Um, you think that people, for whatever reason, decided to show up and pray and beg the Lord to use them um, in this campus, in this city, and, and now he's continued to bring us back here on another Tuesday uh, to worship him in his word. And listen, I pray we don't take these nights for granted. It's, you know, it's week six of the spring semester. It's, the, it's a time when it's always said, you know, you lose momentum and all of this stuff. But like, this could be the night that, that you take that step of obedience or you repent, finally lay down that sin. And it all happens, not because I can convince you with fancy rhetoric, but it comes through the power of his word. Um, and especially like you believers in here, like, let's believe that together. And so as I get ready to pray uh, before we go into 1 Peter 2, 1 through 10, um, I pray that you would just open your heart up, that, that we would not let another night go by, let this not just be another sermon we've heard, or another ministry kind of check on our, on our checklist of things to do for the week, but realize that eternity can change based on what happens tonight. Should God show up, you open your heart, you repent, you take that step of obedience, whatever it is, tonight could change our city forever. You gotta believe that. I mean, I have to. If I don't believe that, then this starts to feel pointless, <laughs> quite frankly. If it's how many times can I get people together and say words and sing songs, feed them, and then tell them to have a nice week, I don't wanna be a part of that. I wanna be a part of something I know God can do something huge in all of you. And He does that through His Word. So let me pray for you, and then we're gonna start in 1 Peter 2 uh, 10 verses tonight. So let me pray. Um, Father, I ask right now that you would eliminate all distractions from this room, that whatever baggage we may have carried in here, you would release it. Any blindness or hard hearts, you would destroy them right now. For my brothers and sisters in Christ in this room, I pray that we would, we would long for you, that you would show up in your word. We can't do this on our own. We want to see the brokenness restored in our campus, and our city, and we cannot do it without you. So God, let tonight be a night that changes eternity. So thankful for my family in here. So God, let us, uh, let us just hear from you. We're desperate. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Alright, 1 Peter 2, 1-10. through 10, And for the sake of being ethical and honest, I admitted something about 1 Peter to the leadership team before a lot of y'all got here. And it is that I have the hardest time ever finding it in my Bible. So, I actually always bookmark 1 Peter. Normally, on other books, I feel pretty confident I can get there. Anybody else there? Like, 1 Peter's like a little bit too far back than what you think? Nobody? Okay. All y'all are like Awana superstars, right? You're just like, 1 Peter, bang! I'm right there. Um, for, for those of us that struggle sometimes, uh, a little, you know, pro tip. On your way to Campus Collective, we're going to be in 1 Peter this semester. So just find it for, and then you open right up to it and, and show off like the guy beside you. Um, so let's, uh, let me do a quick recap just so we are sure of our context because we can't just jump into 10 verses and, and, and make it say what I want it to say. And if you remember, Peter goes at length to make the argument. Really, the first argument is that theology matters and it especially matters in suffering. That, that whenever you are going through brokenness, you are going through, maybe it's suffering caused by your own sin, or maybe it's just some sin that somebody else has done to you, or just the overall brokenness of living in our world, it is sometimes easy to think that deep truths of God don't help. It's 
especially in, in my gut reaction, somebody comes to me and just unloads all of their suffering onto me, sometimes all I can say is like, well, God, God loves you. Now, now that's a true statement, but we don't need to shy away from deep truths because the deep truths that are going to sustain you when you get that phone call that changes your life or when you have that tense relationship that finally snaps and it's never the same and you just feel the weight of being broken in this world, you're going to need deep truths. And the deep truth that Peter is trying to implant in our souls, I think, in this book, is for you to remember who you are. Remember who you are in Christ. And, first, and, and Peter says this, that you are an elect exile. You are a chosen person, and you are not home yet. He's like, all right, Christians, I know you're suffering. I know they want to burn you at the stake. They're going to chop your head off for your faith, but you need to remember you're chosen, and you need to remember this world is not your home. So I can start out before we jump into verse 1. Know this. You are chosen if you're in Christ, and you are not home yet. And I don't know what kind of life you've brought in to another Tuesday evening, but know that you were chosen for this, and it's all for His glory. And another part that we added on last week is that we should all long to be home with Jesus, and, and not just because we get to get away from suffering. Remember that, we, did the, we kind of went back to Moses and Exodus, and it was, Moses basically says, God, I don't want to go into that promised land where everything's going to be easy unless I have you. And, and likewise, on this side of the cross, we don't want heaven if God won't be there. And you need to check your heart for that. Because a lot of you, if we described what heaven would be like, and then a footnote was that God wouldn't be there, some of us would still sign up for heaven. Check your heart. Do you want God more than alleviating of suffering? We must long for Jesus. So with that introduction, let's look at verse 1. This gets immediately harsh and practical and Quite frankly, awful. So here we go. Verse 1. So, put away all malice and deceit and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So, that so is there. So that means that the following commands of what we are supposed to put away is because of what has been written already. Make sense? Like, if you're saying, I'm really great, so you should be my friend. The reason that I think you should be my friend is because I am great. So why do we put away all these things? Here's a few. In 1 Peter 1.25, it's because the gospel was preached to you. 1 Peter 1.16, because God is holy and wants you to be holy. And all the way in the beginning, 1 Peter 1, verse 2, because you were saved for obedience. Don't forget that. You, your holiness matters as a Christian. Some people hear that and like, legalism. No, I'm not saying that it earns your salvation. But I am saying, if you're a saved person and you want to suffer, be effective, kingdom build on campus and in our city, your holiness matters. And notice, it doesn't just say, work really hard on trying not to have negative thoughts toward people. It says, put it away. There's, there's no life left in it. Kill these things. Do whatever it takes to get rid of these sins. And I want you to see something about them before we break each one down. The nature of these sins seem to be about our relation to people. Do you see that? Like, if you're by yourself and have never met a person ever, it's going to be hard to envy anyone. Because you haven't met anybody to envy, right? So that these are all relational sins. Now because of this, and I did a little digging into chapter 1, 
And if you remember in, in verse 22, Peter commands us to love one another earnestly with a pure heart. You remember that? Our command as Christians to love each other earnestly. Especially in times of suffering, we're going to need each other. And, and if you're honest with yourself, when you suffer, what's your tendency sometimes? Some of you probably go either to, unfortunately, social media, let everybody know. Or maybe some of you go to that one person before you ever go to God. Or maybe some of you just clam up and don't talk to anybody. But you need to know you're going to need each other in this room, in your church family. And a practical outworking of what it looks like to love one another with a pure heart is to get rid of these sins. Don't turn these off and think you've nailed this, okay? None of y'all love each other like you should, me included. So let's look at these. One more notice. It says all. That means really get rid of all of it. This isn't like work on one part of your malice. This is these have no room in the kingdom of God. Let's look at this. First one, malice. Here's a definition for you. Deliberate ill will towards someone. And a, confession, or a, a question for you. Do you ever want to see a brother or sister fail? Have you ever found that in your heart? Have you ever looked at someone and kind of been okay if things don't work out very well for them? Uh, confession for me. I'm usually not that malice of a person. Um, unless that person doesn't like me. <laughs> Perilla. Like, if you like me, I'm, I'll be your best friend, cheerleader, we'll go for it. But if you don't like me, it's going to be easy for me to deliberately have ill will towards you. Next one. Deceit. Lying. Or half-truths. Or flattery. Whatever. Usually to protect yourself or to make yourself look better than you are. Confession for me. I feel the need to show off my accolades and credentials anytime I meet a new person. Y'all ever do that? Like, you meet someone and you kind of are like hoping they ask you what you do for a living? Or you're quick to say, you know, I'm a junior, but I got my plans. It's a really, it's a really great job field and you need to know that like one day I'll make a lot of money. And, and you, you, but you do, you feel this need to deceive people into thinking that you are better than you are. And I do this. Or, or when you fail, you like to make excuses for it. You like to deceive, make, put, a, put a wall up so that people don't quite get to the real you. Kind of goes to the next one, hypocrisy. Put it away. What is hypocrisy? A pretend goodness with a deceitful heart. Do you only do good when people can see it? Do you just do good works for your social media posts? Confession for me, and I learned this about my soul. You can go back to my journal, and it's a, it's a bunch of just, like, just going nuts because I found out how terrible I was. I am way more motivated to be organized and efficient when the end result is going to be in front of people. Oh, yeah. I love when people call me the organized guy. And that is sinful. So what I want is for people to see some supreme version of me. And it's like, all of a sudden, oh no, this is going to be in front of people? Then man, I'm going to get all my organizing out. But when it comes to the little things that maybe just my wife and I see, or take it even a step further, just my Lord and I see, I'll put the work in. Hypocrite. What's really driving our ministry energy? What is it? If it's going to be in front of people, we work harder, Right? Envy, jealousy, especially of spiritual achievements. 
Here's a question. Can you celebrate the work God is doing in someone else? I want the kingdom of God to advance, but I want it to be through me and my ministry. And get real, right? This isn't a performance here. Like, what about you? You don't want me? Sometimes it's good things, man. Like we're sharing the gospel for a month, same person over and over, we get so close, and one person kind of accidentally shares the gospel and revival happens. And it's easy to think, why did that not happen for me? Envy. What's really driving our mission? And when these things fester in our hearts, then we slander. Accusation against one with intent of damaging their reputation. Now feel the sting of this. Do you love people? Not generic platitude. Yeah, I love people. Are these things in our hearts? For real, like, you, you want to be awful at suffering? You want to be ineffective? You want to see our ministry, our churches, drive themselves to the ground? Let's be a people marked by malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Be holy, for I am holy. Don't do these things to earn God's favor, but be like this because your Father loves you. Don't turn it off. Let that sting. He keeps going. Verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if, indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. So, a few things about newborn infants. I recently saw one. I did, today. It was... The good one's sixth child. That's considered still newborn, I think. Right? Yeah? Okay. Front row said yeah. But, but something I've noticed about newborn infants. I also used to be one. So, I got experience. They are completely dependent on their moms. For food. For comfort. A lot of times when they're angry, they're just desperate to get comfort from their mom or dad. Right? Um, they have no hope without... Something outside of themselves intervening, intervening for their well-being. They have a complete awareness. They can't do anything on their own. All they can do is cry and hope that something outside of themselves works for their good. Is that fair? We haven't met many newborn infants that come out walking and talking, shake the doctor's hand, and then move on as independent citizens. We don't see that. And what's he, what do they say? Like that. Like a newborn infant. Long for pure spiritual milk. What does long mean? Desire strongly. Be desperate. Be completely dependent on it. There's no hope without it. Complete awareness that all you can do is cry and hope that something outside of yourself will intervene for you. And i got to ask, and this is our generation in general. I think we're all still millennials. I don't know where the next people start. But we don't actually long for anything, usually. We're, we're pretty bored people. Like, show me a millennial and I'll show you someone that's probably never really gotten that excited about something in the past year. It's true. Like, we claim that, I mean, I hate to pick on social media so much, but like, I'm, I'm in this too. Like, we claim that it's boring and there's no point, but then we finish and then we finish one thing and we're right back on it. Just like, loving things that are boring and have nothing to do with us. We don't long for anything. I think one of the great curses of our sin nature is that we are so bored with everything that truly matters. I really do. 
And we're commanded to long. And I want you to notice something else. For those of you who are like, that's me. I haven't longed. I have not touched my Bible. I'm barely hanging on. Be astonished that God has no problem commanding your emotions. He is commanding you to long. He has no problem commanding your emotions. He has no problem commanding your desires. Isn't that weird? Like, how can, you, how can God have the audacity to, to tell us to desire something? Seems fake, right? But know this. If you're a Christian. If whatever he commands, he will empower you to get to. So you're not stuck. Because I know it's going to get heavier and think, man, I have no desire for the word. How am I going to be used? Know this. God commands it, which means he can empower you to get there. It's not just a personality thing. Some people are more longy than others. A follower of Christ is commanded to long. And if he commands it, he will empower you to get there. We're longing for pure spiritual milk. Seems in context, this is the, the pure word of God, truth, the gospel. So you've got to ask yourself, do you crave the word or is it boring? Or are you just not a reading type of person? You crave it. And if you're, if you're honest, anytime you've gone through a season or suffering... Suffering really can kind of work for your good because it kind of makes you want something outside of yourself, right? Like sometimes God uses suffering to get you back to longing for the things that will actually give you life. What do you want? And here, here's why. He says this. Long for the pure spiritual milk. Why? That by it you may grow up into salvation. The longing, the change of desires, the increased appetite for things that are true and from God is how you grow up. Just like a baby. They need that milk to grow up. That's what we need, to grow. And notice this. It says grow up into salvation. Don't read that and think, okay, somehow I'm not saved until I get these things right and I'll grow up into it. Remember, in 1 Peter, salvation is all-encompassing. It's what God fixed his affections on you before you were saved, the moment of your conversion, making you more like Jesus, and ultimately bringing you home. All of that. And God wants you to grow into that. And here's the kicker. It scares me to death. Verse 3. If... Indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. The if there implies that if you have really known God, and be careful here, but I think it's biblical, you will want his word. If you know God, you will want his word. If you have no longing, you need to check your heart. I'm not, listen to me, I'm not saying just because you haven't started your Bible reading plan or you stopped after Leviticus that somehow you don't have salvation. But I am saying, if there is no longing, not even conviction for not longing, not even a longing for the conviction of not longing, you've got to check your heart. Because it looks like to me you will long for this to grow up into salvation if you have indeed tasted that the Lord is good. We have to know that our faith is more of a taste and see religion and not a know and believe. You can know a lot of the right things and not be saved. But you can't love Jesus and not be saved. God commands your desires. Not just for you to align your thoughts with the right patterns of a worldview that aligns with His. And here's the deal. You can't willpower yourself into this. You have to cry to your Father. And you have to hope that something outside of yourself will intervene. And here's, I don't want to miss this crowd. Some of you are here, you're like, I want that. And, and I have no idea where to start. Like, I want that milk and I have no idea where the bottle is. Right? Like, you're there. You're saying, I want this. What, what do I do? Please, see me afterwards. I have 
packets and documents and PDFs of any type that can get you started on reading the Bible. And I want, I want to start, like, if you are not, if you're a Christian and you are not actively reading the Word, that's a problem. I want to help you. Not in a condemning, horrible way, but I want to see God change your desires so you can long and know Him and be more effective. And if you're a Christian, that's what you want, because if you're a Christian, you've tasted and you know that He is good. So that's a shameless plug. Afterwards, talk to me if you need help getting there. Will this be the night that we decide we want to grow up? Verse 4. He keeps making more arguments here. I love this. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let's break this down phrase by phrase. First up, as you come to him. So in the longing, in the word, in prayer, in worship, it's expected that you are coming to Jesus. And remember this, he wants you. This isn't like you've got to straighten yourself up and get yourself good enough to be able to come to him. No, no, no. He wants you right where you are right now. All the shame, all the guilt, everything you've done. He wants you. So as you come, as you meet him, as you meet him through his word, and in the rest of this little section of scripture, we're about to see some new, unbelievably beautiful things about Jesus. And I pray this doesn't become theology, and I pray this doesn't become just good things to think about. I pray you see the beauty of him in this. Here's what we learn about him. Jesus is blank. First thing that he is, a living Stone. Not a cold, dead religion. He's alive. If you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus Christ, our God, is literally alive right now and speaks to us through his word. Not only is he alive, there's something here we've got to learn, that he's a stone. Okay? And in this context, stones are for building things. So what we know about this Savior that we worship and we love is we know he's not, it's not a cold, dead religion. He's not inviting you into a pragmatic set of rules to abide by. He's inviting you to a relationship with him full of joy and love. And God is building something through that. And we know something else about this. This living stone was rejected by men. And you know this, if you're a Christian. He was rejected by men and ultimately crucified. Right? Like, yeah, he laid his life down for us, but he was rejected by men. Like, if you're crucified and killed by people, they have rejected you. But remember this. You rejected him too until he opened your eyes in faith. And Jesus suffered more than any other person in history. And he's also the only person in history who was ever completely innocent. And we, and we can't miss this. If you're in here and you're not a follower of Christ, like, you need to know you're a part of that team that rejects the living stone. And if you reject the living stone, you are not alive. You are not saved. You don't have God. You reject the living stone. You can come to Him and He will not reject you, but right now, you reject Him. So Jesus is a living stone. He's rejected by men, but He's also this, in the sight of God, chosen and precious. The world hated Him. His Father loved him. You remember when Jesus baptized, Father speaks loudly, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It should do something in your soul to realize that the whole world rejected Jesus, but somehow he could sustain through suffering just knowing that God loved him. 
These facts sustained him in the deepest suffering. And, and Peter goes on. He says, you yourselves like living stones. So, so he says, Jesus is a living stone rejected by men, chosen and precious. And then that like word connects that to us. So you are like living stones. It's not a coincidence that we're called the same thing as our Lord. So what does that mean about us? It also means that we are chosen and precious. Isn't that amazing? Like, if you're a Christian in here, you are chosen and precious to God. It, it makes me so mad that that truth doesn't move me as much as it should. Like, I can hear that. I'm like, okay, yeah, chosen and precious. No. You, in all your sin, in all your guilt, in all your shame, in all the ways that you've screwed this up, in all the times you've been slanders, you've been malice, and you probably came in here envious, you're chosen and precious to Him. You're a living stone. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, God looks at you the same way He looks at His perfect Son. Because I know, I've walked with some of y'all, and some of y'all come in here locked up in guilt and shame. You think, I've been at this thing, I've had my favorite sin, I've kept it secret, I've thought it was over, and then you just you come in with all this baggage. And know that we cannot, as Christians, over-exaggerate the love of God that He has for you. And I am the king of over-exaggerating things. For real. Like, Adam, our pastor and my boss, oftentimes tells me that one of my, like, he literally will take what I say about somebody and, like, divide it in half, and then he thinks that's, like, the realistic picture. Because I'm just, I like to overhype, okay? It's deceitful, I'm sorry. But I just, I get excited, and I love knowing that Jesus is so good. I cannot over-exaggerate his goodness and love for you. I can't do it. I can't create a metaphor lofty enough. I can't say it loud enough. I can't say it quiet and serious enough. There's, there's just no, there's no way to express that even in your deepest suffering, the word you can bank on it and know that Jesus chose you and you are precious to Him. But know that you will also be rejected by men. You will suffer. You're going to take the chosen and preciousness. You're going to take the rejection and sufferingness. But if, if you're honest, like, doesn't knowing how much Jesus loved you kind of make the sting of suffering kind of lose its power? Have you ever been in a deep season of suffering and all of a sudden you finally, not like get it in your brain, but you, like, you get it in your heart that Jesus loves you? It's amazing how that suffering doesn't matter anymore. It's kind of sick. But it's like, this, this darkness, I know it's awful, and like people feel bad for me, but like, it's like all of a sudden, all at once, in your heart, you're exploding with the truth that you are not home yet, and Jesus loves you, and he's taking you home. And I think that's what Peter's trying to get at us here. He's a living stone, rejected by men, chosen and precious by God, and you, like living stones, here's what he's doing with you, are being built up as a spiritual house. So here's what God is building through the living stone, Jesus. A spiritual house. That's kind of culturally distant and hard to understand. But I want you to know this, that it has Old Covenant echoes. If you remember your Bible, if you know your Old Testament, you know that God has always desired to dwell with us. He wants our, His presence to be with you. Like, please get that. Like, He wants us more than we ever want Him. So what's He do? When His people are in the wilderness, He shows them how to build a tabernacle. He dwells in that. Eventually, they'll build a temple and He'll dwell in that. But eventually that temple gets destroyed, so he sends the true temple, Jesus. 
And then that gets destroyed, and then that temple resurrects, and now he indwells people. We're a bunch of little temples where God dwells. And that's what he's building. Like, that should fire you up. Really. Like, I know it's kind of weird. It's like, okay, we're a spiritual house. How does that even work? By loving each other, God is building this monument to his glory, and it's no longer a temple with bricks. It's people that he sends and scatters across the whole campus and across our whole city. That is beautiful. He's building his church. And as we long for him and love our neighbors and come to Jesus in faith, we are being, being built into something huge. And this is why it is impossible, quick plug also, to be an effective Christian and not love the church. I want to challenge you. Join a church. <laughs> you don't have one. We'll be here Sunday morning at 10. Know that you are meant to be built together and the local church creates a space where you can exemplify that joy together. And here, here's why. Here's what the reason for this. To be a spiritual house, two things. To be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the two functions of the spiritual house that we are. First, holy priesthood. We have complete and total access to God. Don't, don't miss that. Don't think, okay, I get it, I'm a priest. Like, man, during the Reformation, people literally got slaughtered for that truth. It's insane that we, ha- we can have the audacity to say that we have complete and total access to God. And if we have complete and total access to God, that means we have what every person needs. We're a royal priesthood, this house that he's building. 40 or 50 strong on a Tuesday night. He's building a house. Also, to offer spiritual sacrifices. What are these sacrifices? Our lives, our thanksgiving, loving others, every good deed done for Christ, all of this made acceptable through our true living stone. It's what he's trying to make us into. Like, let this be the night that we take that serious. Like, we leave here and we think, yeah, I'm a royal priesthood. I can offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. You have what the world needs. He's building it through you. Remember, we don't advance the kingdom. We are used by God to advance the kingdom. He's inviting us into that if we'll take it. Then he makes an argument. Verse 6. So all of that heavy, incredible, beautiful spiritual house. He says this. For it stands in Scripture. So that for, because of what's coming, it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So here's the argument for the spiritual house that God is building through your love for him and the love he works for others through you. He says this, from Isaiah 28, 16. That's what that first verse 6 is from. And it's a prophecy about what God has done in Christ. Namely, He's laid the cornerstone. Now, if you've never built a house like me, you have to look up, what is a cornerstone? The cornerstone is the main stone and the corner. But what they do with that is it is the foundation where the rest of the house is built. If you don't have a cornerstone, it all falls. So all of our little living stones that we try to build, if we don't build it on what He did and His gospel... It all falls. We all slide into malice and slander and envy and hypocrisy and this whole thing wrecks shop. We must build 
on the cornerstone. And know this, the honor is for those of us who believe in that rejected cornerstone. And believing in that cornerstone will get you shamed by the world. But if you are in Christ, you are never ultimately put to shame. Like, you can't lose in Christ. And don't think I'm going quasi-prosperity, fluffy gospel there, okay? I'm not saying you go to the wreck, you're not going to lose any games in Christ. But what I'm saying is you cannot ultimately lose any spiritual battle in this world, in the heavenly realities, if you are in Christ. No matter what has happened to you, no matter what you have done, because at the end of the matter, you will have no shame, all because He loves you. You have to set your hope fully in order to taste this. We've got to long for this shame-defeating power. Notice, notice this, though. He says, the honor is for the people who believe. People who believe in Jesus, we're not going to lose. When everything falls apart and everything's there, the only thing that will be standing is God's building, His people. And we'll be standing strong on the cornerstone. Nothing takes that house down. No worldly power, no suffering, nothing. We don't lose. But for those who don't believe, for those who are still rejecting Christ, know that God used the rejection of men to set up His kingdom. And ultimately, that Christ the cornerstone will make people stumble. Think about this. You realize that Jesus is a stumbling block, right? Like, when you share the gospel with someone, usually they either love Him or hate Him. They might not outright say, I hate that Jesus. But really, if you come up to someone and say, you can't get to God on your own, and somebody else does all the work for you, and you have to believe and follow Him, people either, that sets them free, or that locks them up. Like, most of the time, you, you see... People, like, when they interact with Jesus in the Bible, they don't really leave bored that often. Like, he doesn't come in and say, all right, eat my body and drink my blood so that you can be forgiven of your sins. And nobody really goes, that sounds pretty cool. I'll, I'll check on that later. It's either I'm running away from that or they're surrendering to him in worship. Our message is a stumbling block because everybody is building a life for their own glory. And we come and say that it all doesn't matter and that you'll be destroyed if you don't join this building. You can't really be indifferent to that. Know that. That's our message. And get this. The people who do not believe, it says this, they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So I want to say this. God gets the final say about everything. Nobody's rejection can stop his plans for building his church. So we can go in confidence. Then he, then he just blows up with this incredible, you guys probably know these verses, 9 and 10. If you've read the Bible long enough, you know this. It says this, but, so, you're the people who reject him, that stumble because of the, the cornerstone, but, in contrast to you who love Jesus, here's what you are. I love this. You're not rejecting him. You're not getting crushed. You're winning. You get Jesus in the end. You get no shame. Here's what you are. You are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So who are we? A chosen race. Echoing how God chose Israel to be His own people. But I love this. Now we are a chosen race made up of every race. Isn't that beautiful? Like... God's plan was to give this whole big, incredible spiritual house full of every race, yet we're all one. Christianity is not reserved for white people or just people who grew up Christian. 
It's not it. It's no room for racism in the chosen race of the spiritual house that God is building. Our being chosen unites us, not based on any inherent worth or the color of our skin, but because we were created and saved by God. You belong to a race now. Not only that, you're a royal priesthood. You have direct access to God. You are ministers to people. You show God to the world. You are to be fully committed to God's purposes and work. And I love this. You are a people for His own possession. If you're a Christian, you are owned. You do not belong to anything other than Christ. Your first allegiance is God. And there's a lot of good movements and causes to align yourself with. But your primary belonging is to Christ. And here is why. I love this. He he gives you all these things you are, and here's the whole reason you are those things. Get this. If you aren't doing the reason you are those things, and you're not living out who you actually are. Here's why. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. The reason you are a chosen person, a royal priesthood, a new nation, is so that you would proclaim the beauties of Christ. What does that mean? You were chosen to share the gospel. If we're not on that mission, we're not living chosen. We're not living like this new race. We're not living like this spiritual house. Don't go into neutral here. No, you, you really are. You were purchased to share those excellencies of Him. Proclaim the excellencies of the rejected cornerstone that died for people, for the sinful builders who did it. Proclaim the excellencies of a Jewish man who died so that every nation could come to know him. Proclaim the excellencies of him who made you priests. Go find the hurting, go find the lost, and let them know what has been done. The rejected stone is the cornerstone of the building that will show the world the glory of God, which is the true hope of the world. Then he just says, once you were not a people, now you're God's people. When you were not in Christ, you did not belong. You needed him. And in Christ... Never forget how dark it was without him. But now you are a people. So as, the, as Jake and Kelly come back up, I just want to, here's the whole thing. If you want a 1 Peter 2, 1 through 10 shaped application, here's what it is. Love one another as God builds you into a house of people who possess the hope of the world. Love one another as Christ has loved you and never forget that this is all his work. And now that you are in the light, long for his pure spiritual word, that milk, and let that overflow into a love for God and your neighbors of every color, background, or type. Because this is literally what you were remade to do. Now, as we get ready to sing, I'm just going to pray again. Because I don't, I don't want tonight to fly over us because we've heard the passage before. Like, if you're, if you're rejecting the cornerstone right now, no. That building doesn't lose. The chosen race, the chosen nation, the people for their possession. At the, end of, at the end of the day, when all the world is gone, that's all that stands. For those of us that are already a part of that building, put away those sins. Love one another and let's proclaim the excellencies of Christ. That's what you're made to do. Let's pray. Fathers, we get ready to sing. I pray that you would put a joy in our hearts that does not last for an emotional high of a perfect key change in a song. But that something in your word tonight will, will take deep root. So that proclaiming the excellencies of you are just an overflow of who we are as a new race and a new nation. 
in this spiritual house that somehow you're building. Lord, we did nothing to deserve the cornerstone to be ours. Thank you for giving us the faith to not reject you. Move in a mighty way through these songs. I pray that these are acceptable sacrifices to you, and I can bank on it that they are because of what your son did. It's in his name we pray. Amen.